From WOUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Elise Hammond. And I'm Beth Greenman. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. This week, one of our reporters took a look at how the weather is impacting local farmers. This is really a very good agricultural area because we still get plenty of rain. It can be inconsistent. I don't think this particular area of the east is that prone to the extremes that are coming to other areas so far. See what steps OU is taking towards becoming more accommodating. We'll give you all the details and more coming up right here on The Outlet. The program in Columbus that brings books to prisoners is encountering some roadblocks because of a new policy. Anna Turner and Solgu Wismath have the story. It's a typical Sunday evening in the living room at the Midden, a housing cooperative in Columbus. Paintings made by inmates lean against the coffee table, and volunteers circle the dining room table, packing books to be mailed to prisoners throughout Ohio. The Redbird Books to Prisoners bookpacking night fills the four-story row house with the sounds of wrinkling paper and ripping tape every first and third Sunday of the month. Dedicated to organizing against oppression, the Midden makes their house available as a meeting hub for multiple groups that participate in direct action. But Redbird Books is the only one that's built into the foundation of the house. Not only is the library housed in their basement, but the program is also on their chore sheet. Madeline Smith, a Ph.D. student at Ohio State University, is one of the members of the house. Running Redbird Books is her house job. We try to make the house available as a community space for community projects and things that build solidarity and um, help combat alienation. Volunteers at the bookpacking nights answer about 80 letters a month. The book requests come from prisons all over Ohio, and even some from out of state. However, letters from Ohio get answered first. Okay, this is from Grafton, and so I can't fill it. Unfortunately, Redbird can't fill letters from Grafton Correctional Institution due to a recent policy implemented late last year. In December of 2017, Redbird Books to Prisoners received a letter from a prisoner at Grafton informing them about a new policy banning prisoners from receiving used books. Okay, he, he knows the policy, so it says, at this institution, an invoice must be included with any items you send. All books must be new, but they... There are currently three other prisons in Ohio with this particular policy. Chillicothe Correctional Institution, Lebanon Correctional Institution, and Ridgeland Correctional Institution. It seems just like a basic human right that you're allowed to read. Are you really supposed to be just in a cage doing nothing? The policy means prisoners can only receive books if they are brand new and bought from a list of approved vendors. After an internal complaint was filed, Grafton amended its policy to include Redbird as an approved vendor. But that still means the books received would have to be new. Basically, they're saying you can't read books if you're poor. Purchasing new books is costly. New books usually cost around $20. But on average, inmates only have a monthly income of about $24, according to data compiled by the Prison Policy Initiative. Buying a new book would mean inmates would potentially have to spend their entire monthly wages on one item. For prisoners who don't have family that can send them items in prison, it would be a financial hardship to pay for new books on their own. That's another like level of discrimination that I think is just unconscionable. 
Prisons in Ohio were not the only ones implementing this type of policy. Recently in New York, Directive 4911A was initiated as a pilot program in three New York prisons. The goal of the policy was to eliminate contraband from entering the prisons by banning items such as used books. But earlier this year, the governor of New York suspended the policy until it could be further reviewed. There hasn't been an academic study on us in particular, but there have been studies showing that books decrease recidivism, education decreases recidivism. One of those studies was conducted by the Rand Corporation in 2010. It shows that access to education helps decrease recidivism by 43%. Basically, education can reduce the chance former inmates will commit crimes and go back to prison. You can definitely tell if you've opened a lot of letters from prisoners and what they're asking for, that they are looking for ways to improve their lives and set themselves up to do better when they get outside. One way to set themselves up for success is through reading. Some of the most requested books are dictionaries, addiction treatment resources, self-help books, parenting books, and how-to books. But even if prisoners are not reading for education, Madeline argues access to books should still be a right. Former inmate Dan Cahill is living proof that books really do make a difference. I started getting the books in the 70s. It made a, a big difference, you know, rather than sitting there in a the cell all day just by yourself. I would um, have books that would help me pass the time. Over the course of his life, Cahill has been in and out of prison for a total of 35 years. He spent a third of that time in isolation, reading. I would read for four hours and sleep for four hours and read for four hours and sleep for four hours. Everything was built around that, you know, in isolation for me. The reason Dan read so much? Because he saw what happened to people who didn't. The people that didn't read, uh, I would watch them slowly deteriorate to where uh, they would use the restroom on themselves. You know, they just, they were gone. Reading was his way of staying sane. Dan read so many books in prison, he didn't even realize the effect they were having on him. It changed my uh, my spelling, my grammar, and everything, you know, it changed everything. And I didn't even realize it because I would read anything, you know. He improved so much from just reading books that he aced the California Achievement Test. Twice. He had to take it again because the instructor thought he had cheated the first time. Dan was equally surprised. When I took that test and I realized how much I had grown because of the books, then I went on to college and instead of being a uh, the guy that just barely passed, I made the dean's list like nine quarters. 3.8 was my GPA. Yeah, that was like the beginning of the change, you know what I mean? Dan knows his life would be different if he hadn't passed that test. I probably would have, uh, would still be in prison or dead. But Dan is no longer in prison. And in 1999, he started the group that eventually became Redbird Books to Prisoners. You know, breathing and eating is pretty important. But uh, as far as after that, I'd have to say books. As for the letter from Grafton. The following is a list of subjects that I prefer. Knitting or crocheting, dictionary, classic English literature, sci-fi fantasy, foreign language, and a composition notebook. So the only thing we can send him is probably a composition notebook because we don't have anything else that's new. Since purchasing new books is not feasible for the donation-based group, they are still figuring out what direct actions they can take to help overturn this policy. In the meantime, Redbird Books to Prisoners continues to send books to the prisons throughout Ohio that still accept their donations. For The Outlet, I'm Anna Turner. 
Local farming serves an important role for rural communities. But this year, the weather has been oddly cold and the winter was long. The outlet's Lauren Ramoser spoke with local farmers about how the weather influenced their produce this year. Just a half-hour drive outside of Athens lies Homecoming Farm. John Wood farms on what is close to one football field. He grows vegetables, produces maple syrup, and works with wood. But lately, the weather has been giving him a hard time. This year has been uncommonly cold. Mostly in the spring, the thing that I'm most concerned about is how wet the ground is. If I need to use my tractor to plow or till anything, it has to be dry. And um, with the rain, you, you know it's going to be wet in the spring. You just don't know how wet. And so right now, everything's kind of on hold. Okay. John says Ohio had five seasons. Spring, summer, fall, winter and mud season. And this influences the whole year of produce farming. And for some farmers that's going to affect how much they can produce of other things because a lot of us use our ground multiple times. We'll harvest a bunch of carrots out of it and then immediately plant something else. So if those carrots are slow at getting out of the ground because it's been too cold for them to grow quickly, then the next crop goes in a week late. And so it can have a, a like kind of a domino effect across the season. Regional farms serve an important role in overcoming rural food deserts where fresh food can be hard to find. The Athens Farmers Market is where farmers and customers come together. Kip Parker organizes the up to 80 vendors and knows how important the market is for them as well as the local customers. It's been here almost 50 years, which is for a farmers market a long time. Uh, there's more than $2 million a year go through here. It's 150, close to 150 full and part-time jobs just by the vendors here. So it's a pretty important thing in the local economy. Since he started his farm in the 1970s, Ed Perkins has sold his produce at the farmer's market. While Ed stands in his greenhouse surrounded by seedlings of peppers, eggplants and basil, rain drops heavily on the glass roof. He appreciates the precipitation. The problem is the upcoming returning cold weather. As the weather changes a lot from warm and then to cold again later in the spring, growth of plants is limited and some won't grow at all. The climate change will mostly affect the big agricultural areas in the West. And according to Ed, as bad as it is, Southeast Ohio will do quite good with the temperature change. This area could be producing all the vegetables consumed people buy in Kroger's and Walmart and all the other stores. If, you know, there's a major, major shift, you know, it'd take hundreds and hundreds more farmers like me to do it. There's enough land, pretty much anybody can grow their own garden. Southeast Ohio is often described as a food desert, but Ed thinks farmers could help solve the problem. This is really a very good agricultural area because we still get plenty of rain. It can be inconsistent. I don't think this particular area of the east mid, mid, is that prone to the extremes that are coming to other areas so far. The soils aren't that great. It's hilly land, but farms like this growing produce can thrive because we take smaller acreage and we can be up on the ridge tops like this farm is or down in the valley bottoms. It's clear people like Ed and John are a great asset to smaller communities. 
they provide a local business and help end food deserts. But if temperatures continue to fluctuate like they have been, small agriculture will have to find a way to stabilize their production. For the outlet, I'm Lauren Ramoser. While some activists show support for their causes by creating signs and publicly protesting, some use other methods to create and influence change. One local group is working with local businesses to help create a more welcoming environment for people from all walks of life. The People's Justice League is an organization dedicated to creating safer streets, establishments, and gathering places in Southeast Ohio. Since 2013, the organization's director, Sarah Fick, has offered training to local businesses to help them be more welcoming to marginalized groups. At the, in the beginning, we went around with like letters to all the bar owners in the area and just kind of knocked on doors and tried to see you know, if anyone was interested. And largely the answer was no, like we don't have time for this or we don't have the funding for this or whatever. But Donkey, Jackios, and Obedis were all people that were totally on board, like right from the get-go. After the employees of a business complete the one to two hour training, they receive a sticker and a plaque to present to their customers. In the training, the employees are taught how to shut down microaggressions or offensive jokes and how these situations can escalate into bigger problems. Um, so if we set the stage early on that um, jokes or whatever are not going to be tolerated in this space, then that's going to send the message loud and clear that we're not going to allow things to escalate. Despite good intentions, some believe that two hours isn't enough time to be equipped to deal with a wide range of harassment issues. Casey Arnold used to be an RA and ARD in gender-neutral housing at Ohio University and went through over six hours of diversity training a semester. Especially if it's like places where these uh, kinds of things are really necessary, like bars, two hours isolated alone doesn't feel like a lot. The fact that they offer it at all is a good thing, but um, people, you don't just like learn this like once and then like that's all. I would think that it should be something that employees or anyone working somewhere should should do a few times. Over at Jackie O's, manager AJ Castro says the training is a useful resource for his employees. You know, we had had issues and just being in an environment that was, you know, very alcohol-driven, we had known that, you know, uh, that it was an important thing for us to try and train our staff to be able to, uh, you know, intervene in instances that were uncomfortable. The Active Bystanders Certified Campaign is expanding in southeastern Ohio, and Fick hopes that if the People's Justice League gets more resources, they will be able to work with even more local businesses and festivals, such as Casa Nueva Restaurant and Cantina, the Smiling Skull Saloon, and Nelsonville Music Festival. Active bystander training may not only teach different workplaces how to deal with lower levels of harassment, it may also be a good business move in terms of capital. I imagine that there are some uh, demographics that are comforted by knowing that we're a safer space, at least I hope so. Students tend to be the target audience of many businesses on Court Street. For Sycamore High School senior Ethan Cohen, who identifies as gay, he cares about where he spends his money. 
As he is looking at which college he plans to attend, whether businesses care about this sort of training is a factor in his decision. I would be more likely to attend or go to bars or restaurants that advertise that they're friendly towards the community that I'm part of, as opposed to places that don't. In the end, however, what is most important is that the training will allow businesses in Athens to provide safe tactics to prevent harassment within the workplace, ultimately leading to happier staffs and a safer environment. With WOUB News, this is Kai Cobb. Activism has long historical roots in the United States that are sewn into the Constitution. The right for individuals to peaceably assemble has, and does, paved the way for groups to achieve political goals. But has activism changed? The outlet's Julie Holbert takes a look at how different generations view protest and activism. Nina Richner, a 21-year-old at Ohio University, protests as a way of communicating and achieving goals. As a young millennial, Nina experiences protest and organization digitally. I attend marches and protests whenever I can and speakouts. And I'm also a outspoken role model for um, kids in my hometown in Texas that are queer and uh, need someone to talk to, which I would also consider some type of activism, making sure that they are okay. So it's mostly through Facebook Messenger, but also um, I have... Uh, entered a Snapchat friendship with one of these kids and um, texting sometimes, an email, but it's mostly through Facebook, actually. Last year, Nina and 69 other students were arrested after staging a sit-in in Baker University Center at Ohio University. The group has become known as the Baker 70, and while the protest was about President Trump's travel ban, the circumstances surrounding students' arrests sparked a debate at Ohio University about free speech and protest on campus largely because technology allowed events to be broadcast in real time. I think it helped shape our peers' point of view for it. I I actually really, I was initially um, upset about not knowing about the live streams and not like consenting to being on camera and stuff like that. But after thinking about it, um, it was nice to not have to answer questions about it, about like, Oh, are you sure the cops are doing this? Are you over? Are you over exaggerating? How many of them were there? Et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it also helped like rally our supporters outside and make sure uh, they knew we were safe, et cetera, et cetera. The internet savvy of the Baker Seventy didn't end with live streaming. Facing costly legal fees, the group devised a strategy to help alleviate expenses as well as spread their message. Crowdfunding has revolutionized. Um, fundraising completely so quickly we got just i don't remember a thousand or more dollars just via crowdfunding from people like ou alums from like canada or that live in europe now or even just other places in the u.s that would have never been able to help this cause before But not all members of the activist community in Athens feel as confident in the new school ways of protesting and organizing online. Hashtag activism is something that Jake Hagman, a 35-year-old Ohio University staff member, criticizes as a lazy effort. There was a movement early on within social media of, I called it hashtag activism, slacktivism is another term that would be used, of people posting things on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. And, you know, whatever the hashtag might be, and feeling that they were contributing to the cause by doing that, 
predominantly white middle-class people in the suburbs from the comfort of their home, maybe on a cell phone, maybe on a computer. For Jake, physically showing up to a variety of rallies is his way of showing solidarity with underrepresented individuals. It is a lesson he's passing down to his five-year-old son, Judah. They recently attended the Athens March for Our Lives rally. Judah made a poster to use at the protest. Everything for Judah's picture, he did himself. He wrote it himself. He uh, colored it in himself, signed his own name on it. That his poster said, no more guns. And it drew, and then he drew a picture of the elementary school that he goes to and was very proud um, of his poster, showing it off both when we were doing the poster party and at the march itself to anyone who was around. Jake's analog childhood and digital adulthood means that while he embraces technology in everyday life, he is critical of the way that organization happens online. His research for his master's degree has helped shape his belief that old-school activism is more effective than new school approaches. My master's is in social movements of the 1960s and 1970s. So I studied heavily women in power movement, gay liberation, black power, you know, it was called brown power for Latinos, red power for Native Americans, a lot of the social movements that were going on and how they would take to the streets and do what is happening now with with groups like Black Lives Matter. They would go and just shut things down with their bodies in their presence with posters. Though Jake, like many others on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, learns about protests through online movements, there are still a group of people in Athens who protest the old-fashioned way. The courthouse protesters, as they are locally known, meet every Monday from 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on the corner of Court and Washington Streets. Except we might have, if, if, if Christmas is on a Monday, we might not come out then. That's Elizabeth Westenbarger. She's 80 years old, and while she's been part of the courthouse protesters for about a year, the vigil itself is a 39-year-old tradition. It's a, it's a peace and justice vigil. And, and that's, that's the principal thing. I mean, everything that, that people stick up boards about go, goes back to that, peace and justice issues. There can't be any peace without justice for all. The vigil raises awareness for many things, spanning from racial discrimination to environmental issues. Marty Zinn, a 74-year-old retiree who also takes part in the vigil each week, sees a huge difference in the way that young people protest today. There isn't the kind of presence on the streets of young, the younger generations that, of course, in my era of the 60s, it was really exciting because we thought we, and we did change the world in many ways. Despite the differences from old school and new school styles of protest, high school and college students appear to be more visibly active than in decades past. They, they seem to understand that it's going to take a lot of perseverance, but that they can win if they do persevere. And whether activists work to mobilize people through social media or old-fashioned marches, the goal is to get people participating in the democratic process. When their minds are convinced, they vote. And it's, it's really in the voter booth that change happens. For The Outlet, I'm Julie Holbert. This fall, gender-neutral housing is expanding at Ohio University. Salgu Wismath and Michael Cromer discuss the pros and cons of the upcoming expansion. Well, you can't really tour it because, you know, there's not 
any space, but uh, this is where I sleep. It's a regular Thursday afternoon for Alex Petrus. This is where I do homework. This hallway is all singles. There's six singles, and then we all share a bathroom. He lives in a cramped single room in Smith Hall at the back of South Green. This is the bathroom. They're all uh, gender inclusive, doesn't matter. Anybody can use them. Located about a 15-minute walk from the center of campus, Smith is currently the only dorm at Ohio University offering gender-neutral housing, or GNH. Uh, I chose to live in GNH because I wasn't sure I would be able to live in all-male housing, or at least male sections of housing, and I wouldn't have been very comfortable living in female housing, even if I had like known the girl that I was rooming with. Alex identifies as a trans male and has lived in GNH for two years. Since 2010, GNH has provided students with the opportunity to live in a space that is not gendered. As opposed to a co-ed dorm, GNH does not segregate the rooms in a hall based on gender identity. This is especially important for people in the LGBTQ community, but specifically for those who identify as trans, non-binary, or gender non-conforming. If you don't feel comfortable living in an all-men's or all-women's space for whatever reason, I would say that's... GNH is for you. Ohio University is not the only school offering this type of living space. In fact, there are about 265 colleges and universities throughout the United States with gender-inclusive housing options. That's according to Campus Pride Trans Policy Clearinghouse, a research organization that tracks data about LGBTQ-inclusive policies on campuses in the U.S. GNH started at Ohio University because of high demand and wide campus support. Pete Trentacosti, Executive Director of Housing and Residence Life, talks about a survey conducted in 2011 by Ohio University that showed the initial support GNH has. I think it was something like 90% were for it and 10% may have been against. Um, that's overwhelming support. For many students like Alex, gender-neutral housing was a significant factor in their college decision. I got into a couple schools where I probably could have afforded it, but there was like, they didn't have that housing, and I was like, I don't want to really consider that unless I have to, because I really don't want to live like that, especially for two years. GNH provided Alex with a space he felt comfortable living in. It was such a good experience, he signed up for a second year. Living in GNH allowed Alex to express his identity free of anxiety. Your identity is safe, so even if it's, you feel kind of persecuted or looked at or judged, like in a lot of other places, at least you've got a space where you can go and feel as though you don't have to worry about that for a little bit. This fall, there will be even more spaces like Smith where gender nonconforming people can live. Five more dorms will offer gender-neutral housing options, including Bromley, Seoul, Bryan, Boyd, and Pickering. The expansion will allow for greater convenience and privacy. I also think it would add a little bit more like anonymity. So if you know you say, "Oh, I'm in X dorm," like that wouldn't immediately be like, "Oh, like is that GNH housing?" Like they might not have as much of a stigma at first. I mean, I'm sure people would learn it eventually, but some people I know like to be a little bit more anonymous or like quiet about that that part of their identity. But there are still some concerns, such as how other residents in the building might act. I don't think it would be like anything physical or anything like direct between students, but it would probably be more like like looks, like people are looking at you like, hey, that makes me uncomfortable. Like why are they're judging us? Like you can tell that we're not super welcome.
While there are still some concerns about how the expansion of GNH will be handled, Delphine Bautista, self-identified head queer of the campus LGBT center, says it is still a positive change overall because it provides more safe spaces for students to live. If one is constantly paranoid about what's going to happen to them when they get to their residence hall, uh, they're not going to be able to study. They're not going to be able to be a whole person. Delphine goes on to say the expansion will benefit the needs of students who want to have a say in who they live with. For example, students with dietary restrictions who need to be closer to specific dining halls like Boyd, or students with mobility restrictions who want to live closer to their classes. We're practicing what we preach. We say that we want to create the best student-centered living uh, and learning experience, and we're doing just that uh, by making sure that students can learn uh, in every sense of the term learn and now making sure that students can live in every sense of the term live. GNH is not just for people in the LGBT community. It is also for anyone who wants a say in who they live with, like siblings, relatives, or best friends. Alex recommends the option to folks looking for other forms of housing. I would say if you're a freshman looking for alternative housing, like definitely like look Maybe this isn't the school for you, you're still looking, but still look because a lot of places are adding that kind of housing to their campus and like that kind of living experience to be more inclusive. And so there's definitely stuff out there. Don't feel too hopeless. For the outlet, this has been Salgu Wismath. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The outlet is co-produced and hosted each week by me, Beth Greenman, and Elise Hammond. We're edited by Atish Baidia, Susan Teppin, and Allison Hunter. Adam Rich is our technical assistant. Our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos, and Dalton Pritt mixes our show. Subscribe to The Outlet on SoundCloud and iTunes, or find us online at woub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Outlet underscore WUB and Instagram at WUB underscore Outlet. We'll be back next season with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.